Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One and the Box and One podcast. We're coming to you tonight, actually, from our uh, our coaching office down here. You're getting to see where the sausage gets made on the other side of our life here as a basketball coach. But uh, we wanted to come to you and get a quick mailbag episode, really recapping some questions about the lottery, the results from last night, and the order that the draft is now apparently going to be selected in as well as a couple of prospects that are in that range, maybe how they fit with teams, the new shakeout of the order, and just really get a chance to engage you guys a little bit. That first 24 hours afterwards is chaos, and everybody's pumping into the space with a million questions and their own takes, and we're guilty of that as well. But taking a day and trying to think about this a little bit more, step back, see how the, the first day or so of the combine shakes out with who's playing, who measures, in what regard – I think that that's going to play a little bit of a role as well into how we answer some of your questions. So again, thank you to all of you who were able to to step forward and and submit some questions for us to really dive into here on this podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us over on our Substack, the box and one, that's the number one, .substack.com. A ton of NBA draft scouting information coming out there. We do a lot of uh, video scouting reports over on our YouTube channel. That's just my name, Adam Spinella. Make sure you go and subscribe to us there as well. Just keep your eyes on any new content that is coming out soon. We typically share it in both places if we can. All right. Question time. That's what we're all here for. A little bit of mailbag. Uh, I think it was Tony Reale, stat boy back in the day for pardon the interruption, Uh, mail time. That's what we're going to dive into here. Plugo Alves, good friend, Rockets guy, I believe, um, over there in the draft Twitter space. Why has Tari Eason been falling out of the lottery in so many mocks? And I I wanted to start with this question before diving into the top of the board, because that's where everybody's attention has been. The way that the top trickles down and impacts everybody else is incredibly important because certain draft orders and ranges and positions may provide opportunities for teams to trade up. That always has a cascading ripple effect throughout the rest of the draft. And to me, Tari Eason is one of those guys talent-wise who gets caught in that in-between position of being high enough upside that he's intriguing, but high enough risk that no one is going to trade up to get him. Um, I, I think that because of that, there are enough guys who, if they show the right way, if they really kill it in workouts, you know, we'll, we'll see who ends up leaping up in that process. There's always somebody unforeseen, but the risks associated with Eason, the trustworthiness of his shooting, his overall lack of feel for the game, how right-hand dominant he is when he's playing five on five, those areas concern us. And there's enough there that if somebody plays better, if somebody starts leapfrogging to get into that later part of the lottery, if somebody falls a little bit in the draft as a result or the draft order gets shaken up completely, I just don't see Eason as having as much staying power in that top 14 group as everybody else. Uh, Urson Demir at E Demir NBA, uh, who's great. Urson joined us last night in our Twitter spaces. Shout out, Urson. Fantastic work on his Twitter channel, posting a ton of videos and standing up to the Kai Soto army like none of us have the testicular fortitude to do on this platform. Urson, great guy, great question here. How many Ignite guys do you expect to go in the lottery and to which teams will they go? 
and our most recent mock draft, which came out earlier this morning in a quick reaction from the draft order being set by the lottery, we actually had two Ignite guys going in the lottery. We had Dyson Daniels going all the way at nine to San Antonio, which might sound like an auspicious fit for a team that already has a lot of guards. But if there's one thing we know about the Spurs, it's they love high IQ, high feel, kind of lanky players. Uh, I saw a funny tweet out there today. I think it was Simon Rath, I'm not sure, who, who asked what a Spurs type of player is. I don't think there is really a type of answer, but the best way to put it is somebody who just seems to have IQ and is a good person. That'd be the best label I could put on it. So Dyson Daniels, very Spursy in, in that regard, but furthers their approach of looking for switchability, defense, one through four. Uh, I don't think they need to swing for a rim protector, especially if Duran's not on the board. Uh, I think that that would be a solid value for them at nine. And we actually had Jaden Hardy getting all the way up to 14th for Cleveland. The fit there makes sense for us. Just if Colin Sexton moves on, they're going to need a little bit more offense and Hardy slides into that two guard spot where the creative burden is eased on him a little bit. And he can be more of a high volume type of guy. Which, which really fits him. If he has to run the, the offense and create for everybody else on a massive volume, I don't think that's his right role. He's got to come in and be able to score. But consistently, Hardy has been a guy that is under-mocked or undervalued, in our opinion. I think he's going to experience a little bit of a renaissance or a rebound in these next month and a half, six weeks before we get to the draft. He's built for it with his play style. I think it translates to the NBA. He's going to work out incredibly well. Again, all it takes is one team. His upside is incredibly high. Philosophically, we believe that you draft for offensive upside and guys that can be primary creators in the NBA. That's Hardy. That's one of the reasons why we're, uh, we're pretty high on him right now. Stephen Gillespie at Stephen G Hoops. Another one of those no ceilings NBA guys. Man, no ceilings is everywhere. Uh, Stephen asked about the Charlotte Hornets because they are sitting right now with picks 13 and 15. We want to know how, how should the Hornets approach the draft with their draft picks? Do they stay put? Do they trade up? Do they try to move off of one? And if they stay, who is the right target? So fan of drafting for fit, I think best player available is always what you go for. But when you have franchise pillars and stars that you need to build around, position matters. Uh, they're a team that, quite frankly, needs a good defender because that's most important to surrounding LaMelo Ball for success. You need shooters, you need guys who are athletes, you need a big positionally, but they need defense more than anything to, to focus on things. Um, they can get one solid rim protector, which is the biggest position of need for them, short-term and long-term, and they can get a quality you know, wing defender, somebody who eases the burden on LaMelo Ball in that regard, who can also step in and, and hit shots. So in our last mock at 13 and 15, that came out this morning, we had Mark Williams going 13 and O'Shea Egbaji from Kansas going 15. Solid three and D player in Egbaji with a decent athlete can come in and play right away. And a guy like Williams, who a lot of upside as a rim protector, by the way, nine foot nine inch standing reach today. That's insane to think about. I mean, he's a quintessential NBA rim protector and pick and roll lob throw would pair great with LaMelo. So to me, if those guys are both available, they become the right type of fits for the Hornets. What intrigues me about Charlotte is the possibility of them actually trading up and packaging 13 and 15 
to move into the range to get Jalen Duran from Memphis because he fits potentially best player available by moving up and going to get him a positional fit of need, the skills that are necessary and a timeline that works really, really well. He's the youngest guy to be considered in this lottery. And that's one of the reasons why we're actually pretty high on Duran. We weren't coming into this draft cycle more so when we thought he was going to be a 23 guy. Now that he's coming out in the 2022 draft, he improved a lot during the season and he's going to pop so much more in the NBA next to a pick and roll handling guard. We would be a really big fan of Duran going there. So uh, great question from Stephen. We have our eyes on Charlotte as one of the more intriguing teams in the lottery to watch. Mark Williams makes a ton of sense, but if Duran's their guy, I think, uh, I think trading up would be pretty interesting. We're going to follow up uh, a little bit on that conversation with Duran from a guy, Johnny on Twitter, PNW sports 503. Why is Duran good enough to not fall into the trap of being those true centers who are drafted too high? How good do we think he can be? And can he become a short role decision maker? A really good three-pronged question here from Johnny. So the difference to me, and I've outlined this before, and, and I think that this is really the crux of evaluating big men is doing either everything really well doing a lot of things very well while having a signature trait, or uh, you probably shouldn't go in the, in the top 10. Duran does a lot of things well. He's not a stretch the floor prospect on offense, but he is a vertical finisher at the rim and a lob threat. He's a really good rebounder, which often gets pushed to the side in, in importance of what can big men do. Cleaning the glass and making sure that you don't give up second chance points is vital in the NBA. He's got a really high ceiling defensively, not just as a rim protector, his length, his mobility, his ability, just his timing as a shot blocker is really, really polished for somebody of his age. I was impressed by some angles that he showed in guarding and drop pick and roll coverage, but it's the switchability that on the, on the defensive end, gives him the ability to be played in any type of scheme. And when you're drafting a big man, you want to make sure that the way the rest of the roster fills out or the opponent you're going against in the postseason doesn't thwart building a team around a guy in that mold. So Duran's versatility defensively is why he's included in this conversation. But I do believe there is short roll passing upside there. I saw a couple glimpses of it in clips this year at Memphis. And because he didn't play with a pull-up shot-making threat and there wasn't a lot of pick-and-roll pressure that the, the Tigers were putting on teams, that just wasn't an area we got to see often. But playmaking in the middle of the zones, he caught in transition and made one or two passes above the three-point line. There was one or two instances of short-roll playmaking. I think his feel is decent in that regard. And, and I'm willing to bet that when you put him with a tremendous threat to shoot the ball from deep, that he's going to really become a, a solid guy in that regard. Cooper, Cooper Giants 2013. Time to finally get into the, the top four here. Uh, who do you like better for the Kings, Sharp or Ivy? And whose ceiling is higher between the two? Man, I, I wrestle with this one uh, because I've been a huge fan of Jade and Ivy all year. But I see more clunkiness in the half court long term between Jaden Ivey and De'Aaron Fox. I'm a big shade and sharp guy, natural tools, functional athleticism, good enough shooting feel to invest in. 
I do get scared about the, the quick ascent and the small sample size of what we've been able to digest with him. But this is the biggest thing that concerns me with the Kings. And it has less to do with Shade and Sharp than it does with their organization. Uh, it's come to my attention that Monty McNair, the general manager there, has not received the contract extension and is entering into the last year of his deal. who is calling shots on the draft can only make the, the patients play if they know they have job security. And if you're trying to prove to your owner that you deserve a second contract and should be the decision maker over the long term, that's really risky. Uh, taking somebody that young who not come in and look good from your one. I think anybody who drafts sharp has to have the expectation that it's going to take at least a year before he looks comfortable in an NBA floor. He's not going to be efficient. He's, he's not going to be a starting caliber player from day one, in my opinion, but he can get there by the end of the season. If he's able to play through reps and by the beginning of season two, if they develop in the right way, the Kings are always impatient. They want to make the playoffs. And look, this isn't blame for that. Vivek Renadive calls the shots. He runs the team, pays for it. He needs to be able to do what's best for him and, and what allows him to have a return on investment. It's been forever since the Kings have made the playoffs. There has to always be urgency to feel the best team possible. But when an opportunity like this happens where you're sitting at four and there are two guys that you believe are ultimately talented enough to be worthy of that pick and one of them doesn't seem like a great fit, the other is a long-term play, you need to be able to adjust and say, you know what, let's go with the long-term guy and make the right decision for the franchise in the long-term. Sabonis, he's not a spring chicken. He's not the youngest guy in the, in the league, but he's got some time to continue in his prime. Same with De'Aaron Fox. I just, I don't get the urgency that comes from, we need someone to come in right away and be able to make an impact. I know Kings fans were asking me last night if we thought there was a possibility they would trade out of this pick. I think that would be lunacy just because they're, quite frankly and bluntly, not good enough to be an actual contender. They might be good enough to sneak into the nine or 10 spot, but they're not a legitimate contender to win a playoff series right now. They need to prioritize long-term. I think that the ceiling is very close between the two. I think the fit with Sharp is better in Sacramento. I would lean going in that direction. All right. Iced Moon asked us about the Wizards. It's a, a team that doesn't get discussed enough here in the top 10 conversation. They're fascinating. What should the Wizards do with their picks since they are in win-now situation? Thinking about the comparison with Charlotte earlier, where we always say draft best player available, but if you have a franchise pillar and a building block you need to move around, sometimes there's positions or skills that fit best next to them. Bradley Beal is the resident star in Washington. And he is about to enter an untradeable contract because of the gargantuan size of that thing. The Wizards need to make it work with Bradley Beal. They also just ate a pretty large contract with Chris Stapp's Porzingis. I like their front court depth. I think there's a lot of intriguing young guys. They probably need to consolidate in some regard and, and just at the very least figure out who the main ones are. But a lot to, a lot to like in, in Washington uh, from a building block perspective. They just have no other backcourt mate next to Bradley Beal. And they can draft for position there because I think there are plenty of good guards 
in the later part of the lottery, Dyson Daniels, Jaden Hardy, Johnny Davis, a, a bunch of guys that we've mentioned. I don't know which one fits best because it's really going to depend on what type of team they want to build. If I had to pick one, I like Johnny Davis there a lot because I know what he gives them defensively. I think that's his, his best trait. You know, Dyson Daniels makes sense in a lot of the same regard. I think Daniels is a smarter, maybe slightly more versatile defender and a better help guy. I think Davis gives you a little bit more point of attack ability. So uh, can't go wrong with either of those guys in Washington. If, if that would be the pick at 10, but I do think they need to, to find a solution to the point guard problem because ever since John Wall left, the fits next to Bradley Beal just haven't been great. And, and there's enough talent in the front court if they develop. And if they develop, the Wizards can make it back to a, a postseason mold. But I don't think that this is a team that's so desperately in win-now mode because the window is closing on being able to trade Beal and get a reasonable return for it. All right, one last question here, and we'll – Set sail for the day. Drew Nolan at Geek Squeak. Quite the, the Twitter handle there. Um, interesting question coming here. Based on the tape, who is the highest basketball IQ in the lottery? Basketball IQ is a, a tough thing to evaluate sometimes, or at least to compare. Like there are a lot of guys that have high basketball IQs, but because their roles are different, they manifest themselves in different ways. I think Chet Holmgren has an unbelievably high defensive IQ. I think he's a smart offensive player, but his defensive IQ pops off the page because he can do anything on the basketball court. His, his understanding paired with his physical activity allows that IQ to be really, really presentable to the general public and, and to anybody else who watches basketball. I think the same thing goes for a guy like Paolo Bancaro offensively. Like, He's a very, very good passer and impressed a ton of people with, with that this year. I'd love to see him increase the speed of attack, but against a set defense, he has that ability to really pick it apart. This is not a top 10, top 15 in the draft where I think there are a ton of really high IQ players. There are some decent athletes, guys with natural tools like Jaden Ivey or Jabari Smith big guys like Duran and, and, you know, the three at the top of the draft, you typically don't associate high IQ players and high field guys with bigs. But I, I think those two are special enough just with those natural traits that I'd be, be, uh, be willing to go there. All right, folks. Well, we said that was where we're going to wrap up this episode. Appreciate all the questions. And I'm sure there will be countless more after we finish this recording that came in. Apologize for not being able to get to them, but before we get out of here, let's just run through a couple things coming on our agenda here over the next few days. Some scouting reports coming out. We've got Usman Jang hitting the books on Thursday, May 19th. Shout out to all the Kane fans from WWE who remember the eeriness of May 19th. And then Max Christie should be coming out Friday, the 20th. We'll get some, uh, some lottery reactions out there and a couple think piece and, and longer form writing articles on our Substack page. We're gonna be making a fantastic podcast guest appearance on another channel. So be on the lookout for that. We're really, really excited about the opportunity to be joining somebody we look up to in the draft space and uh, have emulated for years. And beyond that, the biggest thing on our radar right now, we are close folks to banning the take foul. It's been a crusade we've been on here at the Box and One all season long. The Board of Governors is meeting this summer. They're going to look at 
doing the uh, one free throw shot and possession change, which I think is a start. I don't think it's going to eradicate it from the game. I don't know if it's a harsh enough penalty. We'll see. But it's a start in the right direction. So, folks, joining us, we've got momentum. Let's keep things going and make sure we hashtag ban the take foul.